0: Hello, fellow foodies, and welcome back to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the Food Curious. This week, we're going to take a closer look at how technological innovations are changing the landscape of the foods that we eat. You know, not so many years ago, eating a veggie burger was a rather dull, mushy experience, but today find plant-based foods in the meat section of the grocery store that actually make a convincing pass at the flavor and even the texture of everything from ground meat to chicken nuggets. These techy foods are made with an assortment of plant-derived proteins and flavors, and a big part of the pitch from this emerging industry is that they serve as a friendly alternative to meat lovers who aren't quite ready to take the plunge into a full vegetarian diet. but One big thing that I've often pondered is just how healthy can these uber-processed foods be, even if they're made from plants? And what about the added sodium and other products that are added to achieve those meaty flavors and textures? Also, what about the waste stream? Is this extractive process sustainable? Wouldn't it just be healthier for our bodies and on the planet to grow and eat whole fruits and vegetables. Go on and on with my litany of questions. So it's lucky for me and lucky for you, dear listeners, that we have a very special guest today who can shed some much needed insight on this industry and take us behind the scenes of where things like pea proteins, defungal mycelia and cultured meat are transformed into an array of products. Our guest today is Larissa Zimbarov. She is a freelance journalist and an author covering the intersection of food and technology. Her new book, which is Technically Food Inside Silicon Valley's Mission to Change What We Eat, um, it covers how what we eat is rapidly changing and the startups that are moving that change. Her work has appeared in the new York Times, Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg Businessweek, and The Atlantic, Wired, and many more. After working in high tech for a decade, she earned an MFA from the New School in New York City, and she lives today in the San Francisco Bay Area and will gamely try any new food. And I'm, I'm eager to learn about what her perspectives are on some of these interesting new foods. So thanks so much for coming on the show, Larissa. It's great to meet you.
1: Thank you, Cassandra. I'm so happy to be here. I feel like talking to a scientist is going to really get what I'm talking about.
0: Yeah, well, I love that about your book. You definitely get into the science behind, you know, some of these really interesting um, and very new technologies. But I want to maybe start our discussion just by touching on what really drove you to write this book. Um, Was it something just a personal drive or what was it?
1: Yeah, I I went after grad's at the end of the grad school my my thesis advisor told me I needed to figure out what what made me exotic. And as a you know, a girl from the San Fernando Valley, Los Angeles, um, you know, a white person, I didn't easily come up with what made me exotic and it took me some time and slowly I figured out that what makes me exotic is that I have type 1 diabetes, which means that I have to pay attention to everything I put in my mouth so that I can take the appropriate amount of insulin at every meal. And it's complicated. Um, I mentioned in my book that I see through food, that I um, have x-ray vision. I, I look at the macronutrients of food. Um, I don't see a donut, although I do see a donut. Uh, what I really see is how it's going to hit me, um, what it's going to make my blood sugar do. I look at fats, uh, proteins, fiber, carbohydrates. I look at the macronutrients of a food. And what I realized was that all of these new foods were so complicated, but also so manufactured that um, I'm healthiest when I eat fruits and vegetables and no processed foods, no packaged foods. It's easiest for me to manage my blood sugar. Um, so this, this advent of new food had me concerned. And then all of my friends and family and even strangers always wanted to know like, what's this mean for me? What's in it? Like, is this any good? Is this delicious? Right. They had all, all the questions. And I thought, okay, I, I could marry my like quest to like look brew food and my desire to um, break it down for people and share sort of my my learnings about nutrition I've had diabetes since I was 12 years old um, so I have many decades under my belt to um, to share with people
0: That's great no I mean, I think you are right in describing it as kind of like this x-ray vision superpower to be able to look at something and think about okay what exactly is in this and that's where things get a little bit confusing with some of these new technological you know derived foods so we know that many of these are plant-based um that's a new term the veggie burger terminology that i grew up with Um, but what does plant-based really mean i mean Is it really taking whole plants and integrating them into these products, or are they going into the lab and separating certain aspects, carbohydrates or proteins? Like, what are they actually doing with these, with these plants when they make these products?
1: That's a great point that you bring up. Plant-based is sort of the new natural uh, terminology. Mm-hmm. It's very much a marketing term. You know, Coca-Cola could be plant-based. Yeah. Chocolate, I, you know, I get, I, I get people telling me that um, chocolate's going plant-based, and it just means that the milk chocolate, they've taken the milk out, right? Um, mm-hmm. so there's this, you know, uh licorice used to always say fat-free, but it's because it was just sugar. Um yeah. <laughs> so it's like these funny twists. Uh so you know, if we looked at the Beyond Meat Burger, which uses pea protein primarily, um, it's just the protein from a pea. So in our mind, you know, we're envisioning this like beautiful, uh, fresh green pea that's so healthy for us that our moms wanted us to eat. Um, when in reality it's the yellow dried, you know, f- field pea that is then this technical term called fractionated. So it's, it's, a uh, it's blitzed up and it's either, um, you know, wet fractionation or dry fractionation where the protein and the carbohydrates and the fiber are all separated. Um, And it's just the protein that's put back into the burger, which isn't a whole food. It's very little plant-based. You're not getting the nutrients of a whole pea. Um, And so it's this kind of understanding that I wanted to bring to my book.
0: Now, that's, that's so important because, you know, I teach classes on food and health, and one of the things that we talk a lot about in class is that, you know, when you're consuming plants, it's not just about the the proteins and the carbohydrates or the sugars that are present, but all those things that give plants flavor, right? And, and color. And those flavor and color-yielding molecules are actually the molecules that also impact our health, right? A lot of those are polyphenols or anthocyanins or flavonoids. But in this process, yeah, I mean, what's happening is where you have, even for a healthy vegetable like a pea, um, and not to pick on the pea, this is just a good example (laughs) of it. um, But am I, am I understanding correctly that you're pulling just this protein out, but all of those phytochemicals that give the pea its color and flavor, those are being fractionated, removed from the pea protein. Is that right?
1: Absolutely, I'm so glad you brought that up because um, that's actually the the bad tastes are usually in the like skin or the color of the pea. I mean, we're again we're talking about the green pea and not the yellow field pea, which is kind of a little different. It's sort of a a a pale yellow color. Um, but a lot of the flavors in the skin and we're not getting that, um, we're not getting those micronutrients and we're not getting the even deeper level to micronutrients, which which, uh, you mentioned, it's things that could have antioxidant qualities inside our body. We're, we're missing that, right? So if you think that you're eating a, a, a dose of peas, you're, you're not, you're, you're just eating protein, right? You really are just getting protein. And it's funny because a lot of, um, vegetables are fractionated in China and they actually keep the fiber or the carbohydrates and they make noodles out of it, right? We don't even get it back. So sometimes we're having peas grown here and they're sent to China and fractionated and something sent back to us,
0: but they keep some of it to make noodles. It's um, kind of a fascinating process. I mean, this this is something that's, I mean, really, I think my eyes became more open to understanding the global dynamic of food exchange. Um, during the pandemic, when a lot of those routes were interrupted. And it is amazing. You can have something grown in the U.S. shipped abroad, processed abroad, and then a piece of it s- sent back. So this idea around all natural, sustainable, it's not necessarily <laughs> sustainable and it's not really all natural either. Um, so theres yeah. it's hard, though, to differentiate between marketing Right. And, yeah. and, and it's science. problematic because shipping,
1: shipping was very cheap. I don't, I haven't paid attention to like how it is mm-hmm. today with all the like problems. Um, I mean, I can't even imagine with what's going on in Ukraine, like what sh- shipping looks like mm-hmm. right now, but, um, it was so cheap and it's why, um, you know, we would get blueberries from Chile or, you know, just all kinds of, you know, fruits and vegetables from elsewhere and didn't blink at it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, because of the, the, well, yeah, I think things may change in the future with rising fuel prices. Um, fuel well, prices, yes. Yeah. So I guess one other interesting aspect of, of some of the evolving kind of vet, that they're not ve- veggie burgers, the Beyond Burger and these other, other products are coming out is that they've also started to incorporate something known as heme. What is heme and how is vegetable-based heme made and incorporated into these products and why do they put it in these products?
1: Yeah. So at the moment, we've got it in an impossible burger. So they they are the sort of famous for coming up with heme, which gives their burger both color change. So the shift from pink to brown, sort of that Maillard reaction. Um, and it also, they also say that it gives flavor, um, that it it sparks chemical reactions in our in our mouths i it's it's made using they have to use Gmo to make uh, genetically modified ingredients to they take yeast that will um, produce a, a, a soy leg, leg hope <laughs> it's a very hard word to pronounce Lego hemoglobin um and they because it can't be it's too timely to like grow soybean nodules, root nodules, and take it, extract it from that. So they make it in big tanks, fermentation tanks, you know, much like sugars made, much like many of the ingredients that are kind of base base layer ingredients to our food system. And they are taking this genetically engineered yeast, which expels this like soy hemoglobin protein that they then put into the burger. And it's, you know, they said that the burger tasted like crab cakes, when it wasn't in the in the burger. And I have often asked if I can try a burger without heme so that I can confirm it like, like live and in person. Um, There's a new company out now called Motif Foodworks, and they have a version of heme called Hamami. And it's very similar. Um, I believe it's not genetically engineered, but I I, m- I might be wrong in the last time I checked, and so people are developing with their version. So it could be that soon we have multiple versions of this. Like, this, um, this, it. Heme is uh, also iron. It's what's in our blood. It's what's in animals. It's what it is part of the reason we like animal meat. And so, basically, the scientist and founder of Impossible, Pat Brown, figured out that heme. He could he could replace animal based heme with uh, plant-based heme and give us still that same rewarding uh, flavor and color change. Now, um, some studies are out that show that animal-based heme is um, a cardiova- is bad for us, cardiovascularly um, and heart disease. But um, I don't know the answer for plant-based heme because there aren't really studies. So one of the things I kind of suggest is that we are in essence beta testers of all this food because we don't have academic tests
0: yeah that's that's a really interesting point i mean another thing that you bring up in the book too is that a lot of these studies that are put out about the safety of some of these food products are actually funded by the food companies that produce the products themselves so there's not as much third-party um validation in some and, cases, and there's
1: just very few st- studies done at all you know beyond meat recently helped um helped with one at stanford um, basically testing to see, doing a study to see if uh, people, they ate beyond meat for more than two servings a day versus regular meat for more than two servings and what what the differences were. But they provided product. <laughs> they were part of the study. Um, <clears throat> and they're one of the few that's even done that. So it's sort of a knock, but it's
0: sort of, well, at least they're doing something. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's a... It's... <laughs> I'll I'll circle back to this, but, you know, the, the idea that we've gone from this very highly biodiverse food systems to now these global kind of monoculture, monocropping, in a way, this is like the next evolution in monocropping of, of, of making these, these very defined products that are then manipulated, um, incredibly in the lab. Um, but I think what, what is, I think, Stunning and and fascinating from a scientific perspective is all the different sources where they've found ingredients that can be transformed into meat like products So one of the other ones I was really fascinated with was your your chapter on mycelia and on, on fungal products. And I'm wondering, you know, when, again, we used to think of the the kind of large mushroom, you know, fruiting bodies of mushrooms as a way of having kind of a, a vegetarian option for sandwiches, but it's gone well beyond that. You write about basically mushroom-based bacon, and I, <laughs> how does that taste, and, and how does that cook uh, in the pan as well, and how is it made?
1: Yeah, so mushrooms are the fruiting body, and mycelium that you mentioned earlier is the underground root-like structure. Sometimes people call it the information superhighway. It's like how the forest talks to each other. It breaks down organisms that like, you know, trees and animals and bugs like and plants, and it just breaks it all down. And it sends, it sends nutrients where they're needed. Um, but um, an example of the first use of mycelium as a protein, so it's also called mycoprotein, is corn, Q-U-O-R-N. And you can find sort of, you know, "Quote unquote chicken nuggets in the in the grocery store in the frozen section that are made by corn and include mycoprotein that they discovered in England, like on the side of a river." Um, flash forward to today, and there are about five to eight startups that I know of that are all growing different forms of mycoprotein, and in fact, some are growing the same exact microprotein, right? And so, it, you know, it's sort of, I guess, like eating beef from one person or eating beef from another person. It's the same basic cow. But um, yeah, so so we're, we've sort of eventually might have a, like 20 microprotein steaks to choose from. And it's grown mostly in big silver tanks, sort of like you might see in a brewery that needs, it needs nutrients to grow. And you end up having this like thread-like mass that eventually the water's taken out and it's compressed into a chicken breast or a steak, or, you know, maybe something we don't even know. Like, you know, I've been told it makes a great crab cake and mycelium doesn't need a ton of added gunk, like gels and binders and emulsifiers, which is, um, one reason I'm actually excited about mycelium. I've tried it in a bunch of different iterations and it it's, I think it's delicious, but people, meat eaters typically are say to me that they don't like it or that it's not the same. Right. And I'm more forgiving. I'm like, it doesn't have to be the same. And so you, you brought up bacon. So bacon, the, the maker that I know is in, um, the east coast in albany and they're actually growing it in long trays that have the nutrients below it and then they they have to kind of convince the mycelium to keep growing layer by layer by layer and eventually they slice they smoke it they add some flavors natural smoke and some like there's like seven ingredients in this thing and most of it is flavoring like think things you know and then they cut it like bacon and they do add, they do have to add coconut oil. So one of the complexities of most plant-based foods today is that it uses coconut oil or palm oil, or sometimes uses sunflower oil, which is a better oil for us versus the saturated fat oils like coconut. Um, But the, I think the bacon's great, right? It, it usually gets, it usually cooks up pretty quickly. It usually, if you, you have to watch these things very carefully. So cooking is a little more difficult and, um, there is a little user error involved
0: in trying these new foods. Yeah. Yeah. That's you thinking about cooking. Um, Yeah. It's, it's just, I I guess that one of my underlying thoughts about all these technological innovations in the food space and around this idea of health, but not, they're not always often completely healthy, because, again, we talked about the issue with sustainability for planetary health, but also, you know, the requirement of all these additional binders and fillers and oils to, in order to get that kind of crispness to to the food product. Um, and it, in some cases, they're difficult to cook. Some t- cases, they're easy to cook for, you know, and can kind of fall in that convenience category. but. I just can't help but think, why aren't we doing more just to teach people how to cook a good vegetarian meal with whole <laughs> fruits and vegetables? It is why is that so so difficult of a move, or maybe it's because you can't capitalize on it as well? I don't know. This is my bigger esoteric question of like why why do we no, do we- these like extraordinary things? Why not just teach people how to cook vegetables?
1: This is a this is a big deal and a, a big deal for me because um, you know I have type one and there's only like maybe a, mil, a little over a million in the U S. But there's over you know 33 million with type two and even more mm-hmm. walking around with like preconditions, right? And we're living through this pandemic where we all have underlying conditions. And I have to sort of live with the fact that they're always saying diabetes like it's a bad thing, and I I have to like try to promote it like you know you know some of us are <laughs> really working hard like to yeah. make it a different beast. But um the um the American diet, so it's not just new foods that are full of binders and yes, oh that's true and and junk, right? Mm -hmm. Um processed foods are have been here since the seventies and eighties and unless we look at the American diet and unless we make changes to it, we are going to keep rewriting the same story and only just, it's just going to get more confusing or more complicated, more difficult to understand. Um, yeah. there are other countries do have um, public health policies that are doing, trying to do more about warnings and labeling. The U S is not going to do that. You know, I'm not seeing that that's going to happen. Um, you know, big food is just, earning m- more money. And, you know, like you saw in the pandemic, like we were all buying junk food, right? I'm sure they yeah. were thrilled that we were buying more, more junk food. And so we walk around, you know, I avoid it for the most part, not always because I have to, but yeah, we can't expect, we can't expect everyone to avoid it. Right. You'd have to put blinders on. You'd have to like, okay, I'm only eating celery and carrots and nothing else. Right. <laughs> we're constantly yeah. around Junk food and you know, here we get this layer of technology solutions that are going to save the planet or do uh, less harm to animals, but our health is still a problem because we still have this stupid American diet and we're selling it to other countries too, right? So we're not just making us sick at home, we're making people sick elsewhere.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's a really important point. And especially with the messaging around, you know, this is good for animals, I would argue it's not always good for animals because the level of vegetation required to grow some of these ingredients, in particular palm oil. I mean, you're, we're wiping out orangutans in, in, in Indonesia from our palm oil cultivation. Soy, you know, is a big issue in the Amazon. I mean, so so you can get rid of the the ugly pictures of cattle in a you know a concentrated feedlot, but then what are you doing to other other places? So it's 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 not always a simple um, a simple response or simple solution.
1: Yeah. All of the plant-based foods and all of the cultured foods all depend on crops and they all depend on the same monocrops that we depend on now. So we've, we've removed animals from the equation, maybe, right. Maybe mm-hmm. we can get there where they're gone and we, we are improving because of that. But unless we increase biodiversity, unless we really yeah. make radical changes, right. Which needs everyone to work together. You know, it's, it's kind of awesome to see what's happening with uh, the war with Russia and Ukraine, because you're really seeing like people working, uh, countries working together to do something, right? Yeah. Um, and to help or, you know, in, in certain ways. And so, you know, I think our, our diet is equally as important um, and these the startups are like really uh, siloed in verticals where they're just looking at their one piece. Versus having people who are looking at everything and really yeah. horizontally
0: looking at what's happening. Yeah. Well, let's talk about some of these other products because these are just, I mean, it's mind blowing what what's what can be done today with some of these technologies. And on your cover, you have this beautiful picture <laughs> of an egg. It's like, you know, and you think of an egg, as like a very fundamental, actually, it's a very important ingredient for a lot of meals as a binder that has a lot of interesting physical properties that um, make it useful in, in cooking. And so how do you make an egg that's not an egg? yeah Um, a a friend of mine works
1: at a food innovation lab at oregon state university and she says that that the egg is irreplaceable in you know food formulation and Mm -hmm. it it has been um last night i made meatballs that were made with like a hemp based protein crumble and i used a little bit of just egg mung bean scrambled eggs as my like liquid um and it worked out pretty good and so an, an egg can be made plant-based. Right now, we've got this mung bean scrambled egg from Just Eggs that cooks up, you know, very close to scrambled eggs. There's some algae-based versions and pea protein-based versions that aren't mm-hmm. quite as good or tasty because you've still got that sort of vegetal taste. Um, but in the lab, we've got companies that are working to make singular proteins from the egg. So maybe it's a protein that foams, or maybe it's a protein that's really uh. um, that really bioavailable uh, protein for the body. So right now, at a couple juice places, one in uh, one in New York and one in LA, you can get you know a protein drink that has non-animal egg protein that's identical to an egg but doesn't come from a chicken <laughs> and so they're using precision fermentation they're using uh, some kind of flora yeast bacteria etc to spit out to expel this protein that they've decided there's mm-hmm. about 80 proteins in an egg and they've decided that you know X y or z are the crucial proteins that they want to start with
0: yeah fascinating so you're real we' they're really getting down to the the individual proteins and in these production lineups that's amazing yeah. yes yeah. So there's actually there's a new company
1: and they're, they're pretty early early days and they're making singular proteins and i think they're the only ones that i know doing this they're making singular proteins from animal meat from beef and they their plan is to sell that base you know maybe it's like a powder usually it ends up being a powder mm-hmm. that people get um, to plant-based companies to formulate better better proteins, right? Because animal meat does have a level of um, micronutrients and th- you know um, nutrients that we that our bodies need, but that we don't make amino acids that are super important that you can get from a vegetarian diet, but you have to be careful. You have to make
0: sure you're really getting all the right things to get it. Yeah. Well, one there was one part of your book where there was, and I can't remember which chapter. Maybe it was in the in the um, cultured meat where you wrote about the process starting with a punch biopsy. Mm. And so when I when I think of punch biopsy I think of a trip to the dermatologist, you know, I like where you basically take a punch out of the skin. That's
1: what, exactly what it is.
0: is... <laughs> wow. Okay. And so what, what are, are they, they doing, are doing they? with this sample from the tissue of an animal? Like how does that then transform into a non-animal based food? Like what are they doing? Yeah.
1: So um so that there's a, there's a terminology thing here that we can maybe talk about later, right? It's like non-animal whey protein, which is identical to whey protein. Uh, but it's not coming from the, the cow that moment, right? It came from the cow maybe a year earlier where they pulled out, they did the punch biopsy of the cow. Uh, sorry, this isn't for the whey protein, but for cultured meat, right? They, they're Mm -hmm. doing punch biopsies to, to locate the best the very best cells the cells that grow and they they want muscle cells they want fat cells they want they want it all and then they feed them nutrients to see what keeps growing really well because what they want is something that will just grow in perpetuity so they don't have to keep going back to get these punch biopsies they can just use one um yeah. and if it's the right one they can just you know keep it under you know freezing conditions and just go back to those cells and then just like replicate the cells by feeding it nutrients, um, just like, so just like a cow eats food to grow its mass, these cells eat nutrients to grow its mass, mm-hmm. um, it needs hormones, like insulin, it needs amino acids, it needs carbohydrates, it needs its sugars, right, it needs very similar things to how you or I might need food to survive and how animals might need food to survive.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, we do a lot of, of cell culture in my lab and I, I know all about this, you know, growing immortalized cell lines in the lab and, you know, how much you have to control for their, um, to ensure they don't get contaminated, you have to include antibiotics. But, you know, what I'm trying to wrap my head around too is how are they growing these cell lines in the absence of animal products? Because most cell lines require fetal bovine serum, which is a kind of, you know, baby cow blood <laughs> kind of base product. So it's, it's, yeah, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of gray area here. I think when you're, when you're culturing these and then calling it not an animal product, but maybe they're using animal products to, to start and maintain them. Is, is that right? Like,
1: they, they certainly in the early days, they were they're they were all using fetal bovine serum and mm-hmm. it's sort of like the magic cocktail. It's like, yeah, I take, i take you know insulin that replicates human insulin but your body's going to do it better right so the 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 kind of extra stuff that's in our blood is what drives growth mm-hmm. And so in early days they were using this and I can't tell you for sure, for certain that they're not still doing that or using it, right? They all say they're working on a plant-based version of this serum. Um, so they're going to take this p- new plant-based serum and, and hope that it grows, but they also have to um, ho- consider that, like you said, antibiotics, right? How can they keep it clean how can they keep like bacteria from cutting in there um it Mm -hmm. means go too big with their scale because if they go super big and then something happens
0: um there's just all of these intricacies a lot of complex factors i mean i can tell you we we work on both bacteria and fungi and human cells in our lab and when you're working with mammalian cell culture which are like animal based cells you have to basically douse yourself constantly in and in, in, in ethanol right to kind of sterilize your hands you have to clean your workspace and you can be incredibly vigilant with even small flasks and still it just takes one little microbe to get in there and it ruins your batch of cells so i i can imagine that they have quite a lot of challenges to contend with with these cultured-based meats. And um, I I think that you'd mentioned before we jumped on, there is a company that's going to open the doors to tours. I mean, that would be really interesting to see. How are they going about culturing these? Can you talk about that?
1: yeah so upside foods is located in emeryville california they used to be called memphis meats and if you buy my book they're called memphis meats but if you listen to the audio of my book i corrected it um which was great (laughs) it happened right when i started you know working on the audio um so they are and i've been i've toured the factory the facility it's a pilot facility it was basically built maybe it cost around 50 million dollars i'm not no one will really tell me but that's mm-hmm. my guess and some other people have you know chimed in on that so they've built this facility but it's solely to get usda and fda approval on cultured meat which is just kind of mind-blowing. I mean, just imagine if like some rancher had to, had to build like a meat packing plant, right. Um, to get approval, to sell meat. Yeah. So yeah, they're once a quarter, they're going to open up their building to give people tours. And it kind of, I'm going to make this point. It reminds me of the Mormon temple when they build new Mormon temples and they want them always to be these like magnificent buildings that like put awe, like, right. Inspires mm-hmm. awe in the people that go see them and I went to see the one in San Diego after it was built and they let people in we have to put little booties on our shoes so we don't must the carpet um, and I was told that they even still replace the carpet and we get to see it and then they close it up and then it's only allowed for Mormons but they want people to talk about it they want us to come in and talk about what we saw in the awe and amazement and in the same way upside foods wants us to talk about these tours and they want to uh, normalize cultured meat and and have us talk Talk about it very early on um, so that when in a year or two years or five years or 10 years, when it finally is out in the supermarket, it's not, it's no big deal.
0: Yeah. Well, I can tell, I can say this. If, if, if companies like this figure out a way to grow mammalian cell culture without antibiotics and without fetal bovine serum, you're going to have all the biomedical scientists in the country knocking on their door, like, tell us about these innovations, because as far as I know. In lab science, we, we're we not there yet, at least in the academic space. So. Right. I mean,
1: many people working in food came from medicine, right? They yeah. were working on you know, tissue cell culture for medicine, for medical mm-hmm. use. And so I'm kind of like, as someone with diabetes, I'm like, could you work on my islet cells first? Could you work on <laughs> yeah. getting me a new pancreas instead of uh, giving me meat? Like, I don't need meat. Like, I'll, I'm fine with plants, uh, which is another thing, right? Um, they're spending... Millions and and now billions to create cultured meat. And, you know, like you mentioned, can't we just have more fruits and vegetables? Um, Can't we just shift Mm -hmm. change our diet? We're being told to eat less meat, but we're actively working to recreate meat in the lab, doing something that you say that, you know, scientists around the world have not been able to do.
0: Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm a skeptic, so I have to like put that out there. It's like, I, I I mean, I would love it. I would love to incorporate these, these technologies if, if they, if they are feasible for, for growing these without, you know, running into these problems with contamination and antibiotics. I I mean, yeah. I think pharma is going to get involved, you know, without pharma, like this is a, this,
1: this initially yeah. was a pharma supply chain for them, but that was too expensive, you know, drug yeah. drug discovery is too expensive. So now they're at sort of like animal grade, uh, pro- nutrients and um, ingredients. Right. And so even that kind of has me like, Oh, animal grade, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah. <clears throat> there are no questions. Well,
0: I mean, antibiotics in our food system period are um, we've seen this in, 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 in whole animals, you know, with, with CAFOs and also uh, with our poultry, although there have been changes. It's funny how sometimes changes are made in the industry because a lot of it has to do with labeling and marketing and how things are considered antibiotic free. You can still inject an egg, a chicken egg with antibiotics and that chicken that hatches from that egg is still considered to be antibiotic free, which to me doesn't make scientific sense. <laughs> at all. Um, but you know, it's, it's all about how the terminology is, is, is posed. Um, That's great that you bring that up because
1: I know I mentioned this non-animal whey protein. And so you can find Mm -hmm. that on, in ice cream on the shelves right now. So there are a few brands that are using this non-animal whey protein, which I'm told helps the sort of the mouthfeel, the creaminess, and it's still dairy. It is not not dairy. Um, it is identical to a cow's to cow's milk. The whey whey protein or casein mm-hmm. protein, these are very functional proteins in cow's milk that we're using. Um, so like a friend of mine bought the ice cream and was upset when she realized it was dairy. Um, it's lactose free, which is good, but for some, uh, but it's still dairy protein. And so there's there's going to be a lot of confusion at terminology as we try to, like, figure it out because it's not vegan.
0: Uh because you know,
1: so um a lot of what is it? It's in
0: this weird middle zone, yeah. Yeah. Well, one other one other aspect I want to touch on before we finish is the discussion of vertical farming. This is this isn't I mean, because I'm a plant person. I I love plants. I spent my career, you know, studying plants and their chemistry. And you bring up a really good point in the book about you know, the questions that we don't have answers to yet. If we're growing plants in these kind of warehouse environments like is a tomato a tomato basically or is basil basil like is that plant that's growing in this controlled setting of a warehouse you know vertical tower without soil is that going to have the same kind of health benefit or nutrient content that 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 same species that same cultivar would would have growing in a field you know, I I've asked for
1: data from companies that are that are vertical farm companies. I've asked for like mm-hmm. very specific data, and it's 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 not easy to get it out of them. Um, you know, most farms use USDA data that's generic, right? It, it's not yeah. farm to farm to farm, which would be helpful too, right? Because now we have. Regenerative organic farms. We have, Mm -hmm. you know, organic. We have, you know, certified organic. Right? There are so many shades of gray just to the soil world of um, what we're actually getting nutrient-wise. But if we just think about kale, because it's it's the example I like to offer. Um, I love lacinato kale. It's really curly. It's really thick. It's really fibrous. It's dark, dark green. And if you buy a package of kale that's from a vertical farm, it tends to be whisper thin and delicate. And, you know, the stem is like just a slip of a thing and it doesn't taste the same. Uh, it doesn't have the same fiber. Um, it can't, there's no way it has the same uh, phytonutrients. It's just like very different. It's a different kale. It's not the same. And so, you know, you, you mentioned the, I, 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 I mentioned in my book there's the microbiome um, there's our own microbiome right which we're just sort of tapping into and realizing how important it is but there's the microbiome of the the roots in the soil and then what that means for our food um, plants in vertical farms are grown in potting soil potting medium generally it's potting medium that's used once and then it's tossed and that's like coconut it's uh, peat it's um, Peat, it's just a mix of like, you know, could even be inorganic. One company, one vertical farm uses a, um, they they do aeroponics. So the uh, roots are just hanging in the air and they're misted, but their seeds are grown in this like blanket. It's like a fluffy blanket made from recycled plastic bottles. Right. And so just, you just, and the, and the roots are white, white, white. They're like brilliant and white. Right. And you expect dirt and you expect Brown. And I'm not saying that white is bad and dirt and soil are good, but like there are differences and we don't know them.
0: No, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, there was a study that came out of MIT's Media Lab a few years ago on basil. That's what brought basil to my mind. I was thinking of this paper, and they showed, like, even conditions like, you know, amount of, of exposure to, to lights within these box systems really influences the final chemistry, the the volatile chemistry, that flavor you have in, in, in basil changes with these different, as you tweak these different conditions. And you're 100% right. I mean, the, the plant microbiome, is critical to the plant's development and, you know, plants not being, you know, motile creatures or sessile, they respond through creating, producing these phytochemicals, these phytonutrients as means of defense. So if there's no pest at all. There's no threat. It's actually, you know, it's, it's, if you pamper the plant too much, it's not going to really produce the types of qualities that make it useful to us as humans to eat. So that that's definitely a concern. You need to kind of beat them up a little bit. Yeah, if There's some microbes on them and then you've got a healthy plant. So Yeah. It's like
1: dry farming grapes or tomatoes, right? People do mm-hmm. that for flavor. Um, and flavor is how, you know, something is good for you. I, you know, like Dan Barber <laughs> exactly. say that to me and I like to repeat it. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's, it's, that's, it's so, it's so on spot. Well, okay. Last question. Yeah. I, I know that you, you definitely are a lover of, of whole, whole vegetables, whole fruits in your diet and grains. But if, if you had one product that you would recommend that people, people try, if they, you know, they, they listen, but this is all very interesting. I'm unsure about these products. Um, but I still kind of want to taste one. <laughs> like what would you what would you suggest? Would it be the way the whey ice cream or a burger or like the corn nuggets like ha- have you found one that you really just enjoyed the flavor of?
1: Yeah, um, I think okay, so like a an an easy start would be someone trying the ice cream with non animal whey protein or there's a very good cream cheese made from a company called Nature's Find. F-Y-N-D, and they discovered a, a fungal protein in a Yellowstone geyser that they are reproducing, okay? So this, this protein is in their cream cheese and it's the cream cheese is delicious. They also make a sausage. It's The sausage isn't as far along as, as the cream cheese is. Um, Brave Robot is one of the makers of the ice cream with non-animal whey protein. Um, there's the Just Egg mung bean scrambled eggs that I often have. I think, I think I just know that like it's like ninety eight percent of chicken eggs come from factory farm chickens, and it just makes me sad. And so I think egg yeah. for me is a really easy one for me to be like I just don't think I can do this. Um, and then my most recent is deli meat. Okay, so I love. Oh right? So yeah, fatty, you know, chewy. Um, and so there's a company in Berkeley called Prime Roots that is just coming out with a deli meat uh, selection. And it's made from koji, which is also a fungi. Oh, and, yeah. and so they've got ham, and they've got turkey, and they've got salami. And I got to say, I was pretty happy.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. We talked a lot about koji on some of our earlier um, episodes on fermentation. So for anyone interested, you can go back to those. (laughs) That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, great. Well, this was fascinating. Um, Larissa, such a, such a great book. So for any of the listeners that are curious again about learning more about what, what's, what's the scoop on all of these new techie driven foods, um, how they're actually made, how to interpret that, that marketing language. I highly recommend, um, her book. Um, and you said you also have it out on the audio version in addition to on audio and I narrate the audio so you can
1: hear my voice some more. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I also have a weekly newsletter that I send out every Friday that's kind of chock full of uh, interesting news and information and like tidbits that I catch my eye, Um, mostly food related, but sometimes not. Sometimes I get, you know, I get excited by sneakers made from pineapple leather or, you know, something like that. (laughs) And that's at your website? Yeah, you can sign up at my website which is larisazimbaroff.com. I'm also very active on Instagram. I'm technically food and also TikTok where I my my most watched video is where I grew a lion's mane mushroom. Um, pretty fun
0: fun 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 i i my lab just joined TikTok. tock um so okay. <laughs> yeah I, i'm such a late technology adopter so it's been an adventure for me but a lot of fun <laughs> awesome. that's great well thanks, thanks so much, much for coming me. on the show yeah, yeah awesome. i love the
1: conversation yeah
0: You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the Food Curious recorded here today remotely. And I want to send a shout out of thanks to our producers, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth of Co-Conspiracy and and thank you to you our loyal listeners it's been amazing having the show with you we're now in our fourth season and you can find all of our old episodes on our website at foodiepharmacology.com you can also catch the video version of this episode and many more on my teach ethnobotany youtube channel under the foodie pharmacology playlist thanks so much for listening stay healthy out there and i'll see you next time